don't remember when Think it's time to watch it again Follow, subscribe, stay up to date Episodes drop the last Friday It's the mind, it's the mind, forgot that It's the mind, it's the mind, forgot that It's the mind, it's the mind, forgot that Welcome to the Matt Forgot That Podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed, or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Before we start, there was a candy store up the block from my grandparents' house. And at the time when kids were allowed to roam the neighborhood unaccompanied, my friends and I would trek up the street and stock up on our favorite sugary delights. So it made me think about the candies that I ate back in the day. I'll start with the no way this was ever allowed candy. Candy cigarettes. Looked like a cigarette. Tasted like chalk. Didn't have the menthol aftertaste. Gum cigarettes. These looked even more like cigarettes. And you could blow into it and a puff of sugary smoke would appear from its end. Then you had Big League Chew. When chewing tobacco was all the rage in baseball, it made you feel like a major leaguer and gave you a sudden urge to grab your crotch. Then you had the fun gum, Pop Rocks. Before the internet, there was nothing more thrilling than putting a pack in your mouth and having your friends listening to it crackle. There was Fruit Stripe Bubblegum, had a big zebra pattern on each stick, and would lose its flavor in about 2.7 seconds. What about Hubba Bubba Bubble Tape? Six feet of bubblegum for you, not them. I think the only benefit of that gum was seeing how much of the six feet you can get in your mouth at once. Then you had the actual candy. Candy buttons. I actually liked these and could swear each color was legitimately a different flavor, but they never figured out a better way for us to consume it. You had to fold the paper and gnaw at the buttons, and you ended up eating about half of the paper strip. Nerds. Classic candy. Still eaten today. I always ate the two flavors at once, unless it was strawberry and grape. I'd eat the strawberry side first because I really didn't like it, and the grape side reminded me of Dime Tap, which, at the time, tasted great compared to Robitussin. How could anyone forget runts? Every child's excuse to say they're eating their fruits and vegetables without that pesky nutrition. And last, Fun Dip. Diabetes in a bag. Came in three flavors, lime, cherry, grape. But I have to tell you, my favorite part were the sticks. I could eat them all day. So what are some of your favorite childhood candies? Let me know on social media using the hashtag MattForgotThat. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars Watch at Your Own Risk. Three stars Standard Fare. Four stars Worth Checking Out. And five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies and TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. In this episode of the podcast, I'm rewatching and reviewing The Fifth Element from 1997. 
It was directed by Luke Besson, who helmed Nikita, Leon the Professional, Arthur and the Invisibles, and Lucy. The screenplay was co-written by the director, with Robert Mark Kamen, who scribed Taps, Lethal Weapon 3, the Karate Kid trilogy, the Transporter trilogy, and the Taken trilogy. This is what I remember. It stars Bruce Willis as Corbin Dallas, a taxi driver and former Special Forces major. I did a retrospective of his career last season in episode 25 of the Matt Watch That podcast. And Mila Jovovich as Lilu, a reconstruction of the fifth element. But the most memorable has to be Chris Tucker. This is a star-making performance for the stand-up, playing an over-the-top ruby rod. A year later, he would star in Rush Hour with Jackie Chan. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. The rest of the cast. There are some heavy hitters in this film. We have Ian Holm from Alien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Gary Oldman, Academy Award winner for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Darkest Hour, goes without saying that he's great in this movie, playing a very quirky villain. Co-starring is Tiny Lister. He had small roles in Runaway Train, Armed and Dangerous, and Beverly Hills Cop 2, but it would be his appearance in the World Wrestling Federation that put him on my radar as Hulk Hogan's nemesis, the human wrecking machine Zeus. The storyline went that he had some heat with Hogan on the set of No Holds Barred, and wanted revenge. So he wrestled, or attempted to wrestle, on Saturday night's main event, and 1989's SummerSlam and Survivor Series. And last, the late Luke Perry, who had the role as Billy Masterson, assistant to the archaeologist. The Fifth Element starts in Egypt, 1914. Inside a temple, an archaeologist analyzes ancient hieroglyphics, which tell the story of an event which occurs every 5,000 years. When three planets are in eclipse, a black hole is opened, and an evil is released, spreading terror and chaos. In the carvings, people representing the four elements of life, water, fire, earth, and air, surround a fifth element, a perfect being, the divine light to be used as a weapon against evil. As the archaeologist admires his findings, believing it'll make him famous, a priest poisons the water jug and offers him a drink. But before they can toast to his discovery, the archaeologist discards it. Suddenly, a spaceship lands, and alien beings emerge. Known as Mandashawans, they open a secret compartment which houses four stones, representing the elements, and a sarcophagus, the fifth element. As the aliens take them, the priest voices concerns that Earth will be left defenseless when evil returns. They assure him that in 300 years, when evil returns, so will they. Amanda Shawin accidentally gets trapped behind the secret compartment, but not before giving a key to the priest, and instructs him to pass down the knowledge to the next generation of contacts. 300 years later, in New York City, the President of the Federated Territories meets with General Steddart, reporting from a space battleship. An object has appeared in the atmosphere, and, while not much is known about it, it keeps getting bigger. General Steddart wants to shoot first and ask questions later. Boy, sounds like modern policing. When it's approved to attack the object, the battleship is consumed by it. 
the great evil has returned. Here's a quote without context. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for conversation. But maybe you should just shut up for a moment. The Fifth Element was a fun movie. Within the first 15 minutes, there's a lot of information thrown at the viewer, but it was done in an interesting way. I felt like you had enough backstory to know what's going on, but still weren't sure how it all connects. The rest of the pace is a little off. It takes about an hour before the mission actually starts, but from there, it doesn't let up. What I really liked is that the future is usually depicted as pristine, but in this movie there's some grit to it. It does feel like the future, but it's still recognizably Earth. I like the fact that the alien beings were practical elements versus computer-generated, but they kind of walked like that 1980s Saturn robot, the ones that took 30 minutes to walk the length of a four-foot desk. Now, the spaceships were CGI, but it blended nicely into the environments. A couple of the graphics that were displayed on computer screens did feel limited by 90s technology. Could definitely use an upgrade. But otherwise, the special effects really look good. The makeup and costumes were also impressive. Again, it didn't feel like Star Trek or Star Wars costumes. They were a little more tangible to Earth. Because of all this, I think the movie has aged really well. While it definitely felt futuristic, there was something about it that was totally grounded in reality, which is what I prefer in my sci-fi. Now for a little trivial trivia. The character of Ruby Rod was inspired by Prince and Michael Jackson. I can see it. The Fifth Element was produced by Patrice Ledeau and filmed at Pinewood Studios in England. The cinematography was captured by Terry Arbogast, whose filmography includes Nikita, Leon the Professional, Kiss of the Dragon, Catwoman, and Lucy. It was edited by Sylvie Landra, who worked on Leon the Professional, Catwoman, The Dandelions, and Odd Job. The score was composed by Eric Serra, who wrote the music for Nikita, Goldeneye, Rollerball, Bulletproof Monk, and Lucy. I thought the score was pretty good. Normally, I don't like synths used in lieu of a real orchestra, but I think the sounds work because of its futuristic setting. It didn't feel as unnatural. The soundtrack featured songs by Khaled and Invamola, but mostly includes incidental music. The runtime is 2 hours 6 minutes. It had a budget of $90 million and grossed $260 million at the box office. It was nominated for one Oscar at the 1998 Academy Awards for Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing. I give it 4 out of 5 stars. If you've seen The Fifth Element and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. <laughs> Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. You might not know the name Vince Clark, but through his various bands, he helped define the synthwave sound of the 80s. Born and raised in Essex, England, he studied the violin and oboe while at university. He was inspired to make electronic music after hearing the Human League and orchestral maneuvers in the dark. He left school at the age of 15 and started working a variety of jobs at a cosmetics company, the post office, a yogurt factory, a supermarket, and an airport. He wanted to earn enough money so he could buy a synthesizer. He formed his first band, No Romance in China, with schoolmate Andy Fletcher. It would be short-lived, and the pair would go on to be founding members of Depeche Mode with Martin Gore and David Gahan. On their debut album, Speak and Spell, 
Vince Clark would write all but two songs. The singles New Life and Just Can't Get Enough proved popular in the UK, but failed to make a dent in the US market. Disillusioned with the direction of the band, Clark decided to leave Depeche Mode and team up with singer Alison Moyet to form Yazoo. Their first album, Upstairs at Eric's, featured the top 10 hits Only You and Don't Go, but it would be the song Situation that was a B-side which got extensive radio play. I got reintroduced to that song because it was in an episode of Glow. Really a banger. They would create one more album, You and Me Both, before parting ways. Vince Clark would team up with Eric Radcliffe for the assembly. The initial idea was to have a rotation of lead singers, but after recording the single Never Never with Fergal Sharkey, the project was abandoned. In 1985, Clark put an ad in Melody Maker magazine and teamed with the only person to respond, Andy Bell, to create Erasure. They would reach the heights of their success in the late 80s and 90s, with hits like Chains of Love, A Little Respect, Victim of Love, Ship of Fools, and continue to record with their latest offering, Dayglow, released in 2022. They've had 24 top 40 hits and sold 28 million albums. Over the years, he's briefly reunited with his former bandmates, and in 2020, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as part of Depeche Mode. I've selected a couple of clips of his best hits, and they're all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Small Wonder. Before Siri, Alexa, Chucky, and Megan, there was Vicky, the voice input child identicant. In the form of a human 10-year-old girl, the computerized robot was invented by Ted Lawson, an engineer for United Robotronics. He believed it could be invaluable to society by teaching in schools or helping assist handicapped children. When the idea was rejected by his boss, he brings home the prototype to live with the family, his wife Joan and son Jamie. Vicky speaks in a monotone voice, wears a red and white dress, and sometimes takes voice commands literally, leading to comedic situations. There's a circuitry board on her back, which, as a young viewer, looked a little creepy, but it's for Ted to make adjustments. The series used special effects to showcase the abilities of the robot, including having her head spin completely around, lifting up an entire sofa with one arm, and taking a page from Uncle Fester, a light bulb shines when it's in her mouth. Created by Howard Leeds, who is responsible for Silver Spoons and the Facts of Life, he was also a writer on Different Strokes, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, and shows by Doris Day, Milton Berle, Bing Crosby, and Tennessee Ernie Ford. It starred Dick Christie, Maria Pennington, Jeffrey Saperian, Tiffany Brissett, and Emily Shulman. Edie McClurg played nosy neighbor Bonnie Brindle. Most famous for her role as Grace in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, she appeared in this series and The Hogan Family at the same time. Like many shows in the 80s, there was a theme song. She's a Small Wonder was written by Diane Leslie, Rod Alexander, and creator Howard Leeds. It's outdated, even for the 80s, and includes the lyrics, She's fantastic, made of plastic. I have a couple of their rejected lines. She's sensational, fully operational, and she's amazing, she likes raisins. The series is cheesy, and it's always on the list for worst programs ever, but it's also completely harmless. It was geared towards a family audience and popular with kids. 
It aired on Saturday mornings in first-run syndication. Small Wonder was on for four seasons, 96 episodes, from 1985 to 1989. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSaroski.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and the review. The president of the Federated Tatarities. Tatarities? Wow! That's a new one for me. And 1989 SummerSlam and World Series. World Series? Survivor Series. Academy Award winner for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Darkest History. That's not it. There was Hubba Bubba Bubble Tape. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun to say. And Mila Jovovich. Uh, I didn't have enough to get through her name.